Heavenly Father, Lord, our hearts are full as we think about the fact that we can lay all of our anxieties and cast all of our burdens upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, the joy of pleasing you, his heavenly Father, by fulfilling your will on this earth when he came, and the joy of seeing sinners saved by grace, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for our high priest, Christ, who not only has saved us from the penalty of our sins, as we heard Christians sing or, uh, bear testimony earlier, but also he empowers us to live a life of holiness and Christ-likeness. And one day, because of Jesus' redemptive work, even the presence of sin will be eliminated so that there is no more pain and no more tears and no more hatred and no more hostility in our world in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells in the king the unrivaled king of the universe his name is jesus christ reigns forever and we will be with him if we have trusted in him thank you for that great reality this morning lord we understand that everything that we do in life is worship even the listening of your word and so i pray that as we hear your word not only in this pulpit but in the fellowship groups in college group in the children's area fellowship group leaders, that all teachers that dispense your word would have people who are attentive to your word because it's not our word, it's your word. Help us to be doers of the word then who respond in obedience and loving, grateful obedience to the truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We're right back in this wonderful gospel and we are in verses 43 through 52 this morning. And if you're able to stand with me, please stand for the reading of God's Word in honor of God's Word. Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 52. Always remember that this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Amen? So hear the Word of the Lord. Mark 14, verse 43. Immediately while He was still speaking, that is Jesus, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs, who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal saying, Whomever whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And coming, after coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures. And they left him and fled. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is The Traitor's Kiss. The Traitor's Kiss. Which one of us sitting in here this morning has not tasted of the bitterness of betrayal? The bitterness of betrayal. In one of the most devastating and dramatic plays, literary works, but plays ever composed, William Shakespeare tells of the infamous account of the assassination of one by the name of Julius Caesar. 
And in the play, the ambitious Julius Caesar has come to the point of being convinced or convincing himself that he needs to be declared emperor and his plans are to declare himself as such as the unrivaled emperor of Rome. But the competing political group, if you know the story, disagrees with him. And in their efforts to stop him, they conspire to assassinate Julius Caesar and eliminate him, remove him from the picture to carry out their vicious path. Well, ignoring his better judgment and ignoring the warnings of his wife, Julius Caesar is lured by his enemies to the capital of Rome. And it's there that the conspirators ambush Julius Caesar and they begin to stab him to death repeatedly. But the most devastating part of the play is that Brutus, a guy by the name of Brutus, Caesar's closest friend, intimate friend, is standing right there watching Julius Caesar get stabbed to death. And when Caesar staggers over to his friend, this is the climactic point, at least that struck me in that play. When Caesar staggers over to his friend, appealing to him, Brutus proceeds to also stab Julius Caesar. In disbelief and in shock, Caesar, right before he dies, asks Brutus in Latin, et tu, Brut? In other words, you too, Brutus? And then he says, then fall Caesar. And Caesar dies. It's a devastating account about the bitterness of betrayal. And no matter who you are this morning... I'm sure that if I were to ask you to bear witness of this, no matter who you are this morning, you and I have all tasted to some extent or another, in some way, in some way, shape, or form, the bitterness of betrayal. And yet, as we've said again and again in these unique accounts of our Lord Jesus, the great Redeemer of the world, no one has ever experienced betrayal as Jesus experienced betrayal here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, you may remember, because it's been a couple of weeks, that it's now past midnight. Our Lord and His disciples just made their way from the upper room where they partook of the Passover meal. They celebrated that great meal, and Jesus made the transition to what we know now as communion or the Lord's Supper. They've made their way from that upper room, if you remember. It's now past midnight to the Garden of Gethsemane where they've spent much time before. It was a familiar place to Jesus and His disciples. It was sort of a a retreat location for them. They've been there before because Judas Iscariot knew of the place. So they've been there before. And it's here in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember, that recognizing the intense spiritual warfare that was about to befall Him, Jesus, not only Himself, but His disciples, He spends much time Consider a time in prayer. Jesus is under so much emotional distress that His sweat, it says, became like drops of blood. Not just in anticipation of everybody deserting Him, but the greatest emotional distress that Jesus is experiencing here is the anticipation of separation from His Father because our sins would be imputed or placed upon Jesus and the wrath of God would be poured upon Jesus. And at that moment on the cross, God the Father would separate Himself from His Son. And Jesus is in emotional distress over that. And yet... 
As we saw a few weeks ago, even in the midst of his own turmoil and his own distress, Jesus' concern is also for his disciples. He's concerned about them. So he's repeatedly exhorted them to watch and pray, to follow his lead as they are here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And of course, they fail miserably, if you remember. And the reason why Jesus is doing this and exhorting his disciples repeatedly by way of his example even, is that they are themselves about to undergo unparalleled suffering at the hands of Satan. And it's on the heels of all of this emotion and intensity that we have our passage here. So it's past midnight, some point past midnight. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's pitch dark. And now this is where our passage falls in. And what I want you to notice are six scenes here as we consider Jesus' betrayal and arrest from this particular passage. Consider first the secret conspirators. The secret conspirators in verse 43. Immediately it says, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve. Mark, why are you telling us that Judas is one of the twelve? We know this already, don't we? Mark has mentioned that before, back in chapter 3. At least two or three other times, we know that Judas was one of the twelve. But this is Mark's way of emphasizing the audacious nature, the outrageous nature of this act. It's as if he's saying, this is Judas. One of the twelve, says Mark, who actually did this. He had the audacity to do this. Can you believe it? And you believe it. One of his own will now betray him. This is heart-wrenching, isn't it? This is heart-wrenching. This is not the first time we've been exposed to this. Obviously, we've grown up understanding the traitor, the ultimate traitor, Judas. I mean, nobody even names their kid Judas, right? Because right away you know what that implies. Who names their kid Judas? Please don't tell me anybody did this here, even on live stream. Okay? Because we got to talk. Everybody knows how heart-wrenching this is. It's similar when David in Psalm 55 writes about the way he feels about his own son, Absalom, betraying him. I mean, I could put up, says David in essence, with somebody who is my enemy doing this, but it's my own friend, and specifically his own son, Absalom, who is betraying him. And so it's none other than Judas's mark. Verse 43, who came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. The parallel account of Matthew chapter 26 and verse 47 describes this crowd as a great multitude. A great multitude. And this multitude would have been made up of both the Jewish temple police. As we look at John chapter 18, verse 3, these were officers, Jewish officers, sort of like security officers. And they only carried around with them clubs, not weapons like swords. So that would have, this would have included the Jewish temple police led by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body of chief priests and scribes and the elders. But also, in addition... Judas Iscariot had taken the time with the help of the Jewish Sanhedrin to procure soldiers of the Roman cohort, according to John chapter 18 and verse 3. And what you need to understand is this. 
When you're talking about a Roman cohort or a Roman battalion, that could be anywhere in the excess of 600 Roman soldiers or as little, depending on what accounts or sources you're looking at, two to 300 soldiers. As many as 600, as few as two to 300 soldiers. And so when we're told that this is a great multitude, we're talking about a multitude consisting of the Jewish temple police with clubs, the Roman soldiers, anywhere from two to 600 soldiers, plus the Jewish Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. It was a great crowd of a few hundred people. They come to him sometime after night. It is a mob. And they come to him in, in secrecy. At night, they come to arrest Jesus like he's some kind of a common criminal. You know, this is how it's always been, by the way, with those who are rebellious and who love their sin. In John chapter 3, verse 19, it says, And this is the judgment, John says, that the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness, for their deeds were what? Evil. Their deeds were evil. That's speaking first about the light with a capital L who is Jesus, but it's also a parallel to those who reject Jesus and love their sin, who love the darkness both literally and figuratively. On the latter, as far as their sin is concerned. But the ringleader in the midst of all of this, notice secondly, is the shameless traitor. The shameless traitor in verse 44. Now he who was betraying him, speaking of Judas Iscariot, had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away under guard. Now remember, it's, it's after midnight here. It's terribly dark. It's pitch black. There are no street lights like in our day. There are no handheld flashlights in those days. Even in John 18.3, we're told that they came carrying lanterns and torches. That was their light. Because this is the only way that they could see in the dark. And so mark it, because of these conditions, the prearranged plan from Judas Iscariot is that upon getting to the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas will give them a signal. What is that signal? Is he going to just point to Jesus from a distance, ashamed of what he's doing? Is he going to call him, hey, Jesus, if you're here, raise your hand so that they will come in and arrest you. That's not what he does. He's going to walk up to Jesus. And of all things, of all the shocking things, the signal will be a kiss. A kiss. The ultimate kiss of death, right? Whomever I kiss, he is the one. I'm even going to single him out for you guys with the ultimate act of affection in that culture. And notice how duped this guy is, how deceived he is. He speaks with such authority, doesn't he? Here's the plan. I'm going to kiss him, seize him, lead him away under guard. I mean, you're talking about a power-hungry individual laying down, dropping down orders as if he's in charge. He's got the upper hand on our Lord as if he is the one who is under control in all of this. He's on a power trip and his behavior is shameless. Look at verse 45. After coming, in other words, upon arriving, Judas immediately went to him. That is without a second thought, without a consideration, without hesitation in this mutinous act he is resolved immediately he goes to jesus saying rabbi and kissed him 
What a two-faced hypocrite. He gives the appearance of respect. He pretends to have a high regard for Jesus, even calling him rabbi, teacher, a title of honor and high regard and respect. And then immediately, without a thought, he kisses Jesus on the cheek. I mean, in those days, a, a kiss on the hand was an act of respect and honor. But when you kiss somebody on the cheek, up the ante on the honor and the respect and the affection. It was a symbolic, intimate act of friendship to kiss somebody on the cheek. It was a way for you to express your loyalty and your affection for someone to kiss them on the cheek. And listen to this. What's especially disturbing is that the verb there in verse 45, kissed him, is the Greek word for brotherly love, phileo. Brotherly love, brotherly affection. But in addition to the word phileo, there's a little word attached to the front of phileo, a preposition making it kataphileo. It intensifies the word, giving the sense he kissed him fervently. He kissed him passionately. It's like he really kissed him, like he really meant it from the heart. But in in fact, he did not mean it. It's an intensified form of the verb here. Katafileo. You see, by now his conscience had been seared. Judas had no conscience that was working properly anymore, that was warning him and cautioning him. Don't go there, Judas. Repent. That is sinful before the eyes of the Lord. That voice had become almost non-existent anymore for Judas. Don't do this. His heart by now was terribly hardened and, and callous. Beloved, Judas had become a willing instrument of Satan. And in all of this, this happens after Judas Iscariot was with our Lord for three plus years. I mean, imagine that. That's what makes this, uh, this act all the more audacious and outrageous. That he's been with our Lord. He has seen him display compassion for people and love people. And he's been fed by Jesus and taken care of by Jesus in the midst of the storm. And Jesus calming the waters and the winds. Judas Iscariot was there. He's seen Jesus' powerful, mighty works that bear witness to who he is as the Son of God. He's heard Jesus' life-giving words to people who were broken and lost like sheep having no shepherd. Judas had been so close to Jesus. He had been with him for years, so close to the truth, and yet his heart was so far from him, right? He had become like the religious leaders of whom Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And you see, hypocrisy is like this, isn't it? Hypocrisy is like this. On the outside, one can come to the church, one can put on a facade, one can put on a show, appear a certain way to others, even be serving to the maximum level, all the while you are a Judas Iscariot at heart. You are a traitor at heart. One can go through all of the motions like Judas Iscariot. But on the inside, you're not genuine. On the inside, things are different. On the inside, your heart is far from God, not fixed on God or what pleases Him. 
Not responding to his word in loving obedience. Not worshiping the king and adoring him. He could be there and yet physically be around people, all the while fooling people, but you will never fool the Lord, right? Jesus knew Judas's heart all along. This was according to the predetermined plan of God, but Judas chose to live this way. He chose to, to betray Jesus. How that works in the infinite sovereignty and providence of God, and yet man's responsibility, I don't know. But that's what the word affirms. Both the sovereignty of God and human responsibility that we can never say, well, God is sovereign, so what do I have a role to play in this? Absolutely not. Scripture holds you directly responsible for your choices. That's the case with Judas Iscariot. His heart was far from the Lord. And brethren, Judas was the picture, perfect example of one who had developed a callous, hardened heart over time. Something that every single one of us should be careful about. That that is not you this morning. That that is not you. That you've hardened your heart against God. That you have turned down the volume whenever the, pre, the, the Word of God is preached or the Word of God is opened. You've turned the volume down. You don't want to listen. You're choosing to live that way. Judas was the perfect picture of a hardened heart. This is the Sinclair Ferguson who writes this, quote, Judas's conscience was now so seared that he could no longer see the illegal actions in which he had involved himself. Months before this event took place, when Judas was the well-respected treasurer of the disciple band, he would probably have been incapable of believing that any of the disciples could do such a thing, let alone himself. But Judas had begun to steal from the disciples' fund. He had taken what belonged to his fellows, he had taken what belonged to Jesus. So true, isn't it? It was not an immediate fall. It was a slow fall for him. It was a compromise after weeks and weeks, day by day, weeks and weeks, months and months, leading him to this point. He had taken what belonged to Jesus. Now listen, some of us may hear this and say, well, well I would never do that. I've never stolen money from anybody. I've never robbed Christ of, of money this way. What is Sinclair Ferguson talking about? How could this possibly apply to me? Well, when was the last time that you robbed Christ of worship this morning? Did you rob Christ of singing praises unto him just this morning? You know, sometimes I just look around and, you know, none of us want to walk around with a critical spirit, being the Holy Spirit around one another, right? But I look around sometimes and I think to myself, man listen to the words that we're singing. How come you're not singing, some of you? And you rob Christ of the glory and the adoration and the praise that He's worthy of. When was the last time you robbed Christ of devotion? Getting up in the morning and giving Him the first fruits of your time. Opening up the Holy Scriptures and being encouraged by the Word of Christ and saturating your mind with the truth of who He is and just being driven to say, Oh Lord, thank You for who You are in the light of my weakness and vulnerabilities. Thank You. You are worthy of my devotion and worship. We rob Christ of that every single day, don't we? Wholehearted, unrivaled worship in our hearts. How often have we not robbed Christ of our service? He's given us spiritual gifts. If we're in Christ, 
a spiritual set of gifts, multicolored, variegated, a set, a package of gifts for you to use for his glory and the edification and the building up of his, of his people here in this church or your abilities that he's given you by his grace as well, spiritual gifts and physical abilities he's given you, and you're not serving him. You're robbing Christ of what belongs to him. You're robbing Christ of service to him for his glory and for the good of other people. It's not about you. It's not about how weak I am and what do I have to offer. It's about the grace of Christ, isn't it? It's about his grace that he's given you. See, we rob Christ of so many other things. Each of us have been Judas Iscariot at different point in time. And some of you sitting in here this morning, years and years and years of being exposed to the truth, to the word of Christ, and you still reject Jesus because you love your sin more than you love the risen, exalted Christ who will come one day to judge the living and the dead, including you. Repent of your sins. Trust in him. Count him as the greatest pearl of great price, the greatest treasure ever offered to mankind. Salvation from your sins now and forevermore. What better offer is that? Stop robbing God of his glory, some of you. So we're all guilty of this, aren't we? There's lessons for all of us to learn. He goes on, Ferguson, he says this, Was it the case with Judas, as with others, that he was driven to hide those small sins until he would choose to have Jesus murdered rather than himself discovered? At the end of the day, betraying Christ, says Ferguson, came more easily to Judas than confessing his sin. His tragedy has often been repeated. He stands as a warning to us. When you fall into sin, Christian, openly confess it to Christ and be cleansed, or the darkness in your heart may one day engulf your whole soul. End quote. What's he saying? That a hardened Callous heart can develop over time with small compromises, right? A little sin here, a little compromise there, a little partaking here in secret, a little partaking there even in public, a little sin, a little sin there. And over time, eventually that stacks up unconfessed. Unconfessed, unrepentant sin. It's like the famous saying, right? Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny or a future. So true, isn't it? I'll repeat it. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny or a future. That's the case. It's so true. Beloved, this is why Scripture warns us about the danger of hypocrisy. This is why the Scriptures warn us repeatedly about the danger of a hardened heart. In fact, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 3 for a minute. This is so instructive for us. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. Listen to the warning to believers. He calls them brethren. Hebrews 3 and verse 12. Take care, brethren, believers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Verse 13 of Hebrews 3. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called what? Today. So that none of you, listen to this, be in one another's lives 
Make sure that you are mutually encouraging one another. This has implications for you being involved in church life and becoming a member of a healthy gospel preaching church where you're going to be challenged to discipleship, right? Oftentimes we think, stop putting rules on me. Stop putting rules on me about getting involved and serving and all of that. It's for your good and for the glory of God, right? Look at this. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of what? Of sin. Sin is deceptive. Sin is alluring. Sin grows in isolation. Sin lies dormant. And it tells you, I will satisfy you. Betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and I will be your satisfaction. Did he deliver for Judas sin? No. No. Don't obey him in that area of your life. Don't give up that pet sin in private. Don't confess that. Worry about your reputation. What will people think about you if you confess that? What will people say? Everything that you've earned, all the respect that you've gotten, all the people will have a low view of you. See, sin lies to us, doesn't it? It's pride in the heart that's more concerned for self, self-exaltation rather than the exaltation of King Jesus, right? And slowly but surely, when we don't confess our sins, we become hardened and callous. And so what are we to do instead? Go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Just a few pages over to your right. Hebrews chapter 12. Watch this. Hebrews 12 and verse 1. I love this. On the heels of the great hall of faith of Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, believer... Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, all these people of faith who were not perfect people, who were people that were flawed and weak just like us, but their faith was in God, right? He was the anchor of their hearts. Having all of these witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And on the other hand, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? How are we to run this race, author of Hebrews, or Lord? How are we to run this race victoriously? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Pretty clear, isn't it? See, in the Christian life, we're always fighting a two-front battle. On the one hand, we are, by God's mighty enabling grace, laying aside prevailing sins that weigh us down, that hinder your growth in a greater Christ-likeness. God is a gracious, good, kind, heavenly Father. He says, my child, don't dwell in that sin anymore. For my glory, first and foremost, I'm going to give you a spiritual whacking, a spiritual spanking because I love you. But two, this isn't good for you. We identify with that as parents, don't we? Hey, kid, yes, I want you to obey me, and I'm the one in authority, and you're in submission, but don't go stick your finger in that electric socket. You know what's going to happen to you? You're going to die, right? It's not good for you. That's the idea here. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This is how you're going to run the race to win. This is going to lead to your endurance. When you set your eyes on Jesus... So notice that. It's a two-front battle for the believer. If you're living, beloved, in known unrepentant sin this morning, it's because you're choosing to live that way, right? God's grace is not only mighty to save, but it is mighty to sanctify. 
See, with Judas, he completely turned his back on the one who was the fountain of living waters. And consequently, he suffered the ramifications of that forevermore. But brethren, Judas's hardened heart underscores the reason why we must keep short accounts with God. Hear me, daily confession is absolutely essential for the Christian. You say, well, what? I thought, Pastor Kempis, that Christians no longer have to confess their sins. Well, you thought wrong. You did. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins continually, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen to me. We do not cease to confess our sins as believers because we have come to be saved from our sins. We daily confess our sins as believers because we know with great confidence that Jesus said it is finished and the answer to our confession will always be what? Yes, in Christ and because of the cross. We daily confess our sins. We daily repent, turn away from sin, and put our trust in Jesus in a, an experiential way as believers. We have entered, as Thomas Watson put it, as believers into a lifestyle of repentance now as believers. That didn't describe the, your lifestyle before Christ, right? Now you enter into a lifestyle of repentance upon salvation. Where daily you're turning away from sin and putting your faith in Jesus in an experiential way, in a practical kind of way. Even though your position has been secured because of Christ alone, not on the basis of anything that you could ever do. Positionally, you are righteous in Christ. You've been given the righteousness of Jesus. But practically, you are to live righteously in the power of the Spirit by the grace of God, right? There's a distinction. And so what does repentance involve in my sanctification? I love What Thomas Watson says, and I'll add one thing that I think needs to be said. One, it involves sight of sin. If you're going to practice repentance and confession in your life as a believer, it involves first and foremost sight of sin. Do you see your sin? What are you going to repent of if you don't think that you've sinned in an area? Sight of sin. Secondly, sorrow for sin. Are you grieved? You should be grieved and broken that your sin grieves the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, Ephesians chapter 4. You shouldn't be sorrowful. Oh, the consequences. That's not repentance. Oh, great. Now everybody knows I'm sorrowful. That's not godly repentance. Sorrow because you know you've hurt the heart of your heavenly Father who has sent His Son Jesus into the world to die for your sins. That kind of sorrow is godly sorrow. Sight of sin, sorrow for sin, shame for sin. Shame for sin. Not even just shame for ourselves, but the shame that we have brought to Christ's name, right? Because it's about the glory of Jesus. Not about our glory. It's about bringing shame to the name of Christ and the witness of Christ. It's about His glory. Sight of sin, sorrow for sin, shame for sin, confession of sin. Confession literally means to say the same thing as God says about our sin. To agree with God about the way that He views sin as an affront to His holy and righteous character. So you must confess your sin. Lord, I know that this sin is in rebellion against You. Please forgive me, Father. I know that You sent Your Son, Jesus, into the world to die for such sins. These thoughts, these words, these actions. 
This refraining from praising you and adoring you and being devoted to you. I know that Jesus came and he said, it is finished. It's all paid for. But Lord, you also call me as, a, as an outflow of the grace of God to be confessing my sin to you. Lord, please forgive me. Renew me. Sight of sin, sorrow for sin, shame for sin, confession of sin, hatred of sin. Hatred of sin, right? We no longer love our sin, and we should pray that way. And when we don't hate our sin enough, we should even repent of that sin, that we don't hate our sin as we should. Sixth, turning from sin. Repentance is the word metanoia, literally a change of mind, about God and about our sin, that leads to a, an inevitable change of behavior in the power of the Spirit. Right? A change of thinking about our sin and about God that leads inevitably and in the power of the Spirit to a change of lifestyle, a change of behavior, a change of conduct. As you think, so you will live, right? Turning from sin. And I would add this. Savor the Savior. Cherish Christ. Having seen and turned from your sin, made a resolve to, Lord, I know that I'm not going to be perfect moving forward, but I'm resolved by your grace to be victorious in this area. Thank you for Jesus. Oh, Lord, thank you for the sweetness of the person and the work of Christ. Because, beloved, I know of no greater antidote against an appetite for sin than to cherish and treasure the person and the work of Jesus, right? That's why we're studying the Gospel of Mark. For three years, we're studying about the person and the work of Jesus who is the the pearl of great price so that we would hate our sin and savor the Savior, right? He's sweet, sweeter than anything that the world or Satan has to offer us. Listen to C.H. Spurgeon, quote, Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, and a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character which makes the man love what once he hated, namely holiness. Now we want to be like Jesus. And hate what he once loved, namely our sin. See, when you come to know Jesus, it's not just that your relationship with God changes. You go from enemy of God by faith in Jesus to now friend and child of God and recipient of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And on and on we can go about that. But your your relationship to the world and to sin and to the kinds of friends that you surround yourself with, that changes as well. It's not that you become some self-righteous, pompous person, holier than thou. No, now you want to be like Jesus. And the question now for you is no longer, how close can I get to the edge so that I can partake of that? It's how far can I get from that so that I could be like Christ? Because that's what it's about. Your relationship to God through faith in Jesus changes as a believer, but also your relationship to the world and to sin and to the kinds of influences that dictate the way that you think and the way that you live and your priorities and your purposes and your goals, right? That's comprehensive stuff here we're talking about. None of this wishy-washy, half-in, half-out kind of stuff, right? One foot here and one foot on the other side. That's not what we're talking about here. You see, this is the problem with secret, coddled, unconfessed sin. Our problem is a love problem. It's a love problem. When we choose to live in known, unrepentant sin, like Judas Iscariot, we are showing that we love our sin more than Christ. That our loyalty is stronger toward that particular sin or idolatrous desire rather than Jesus. We don't love Christ enough. That's the issue. 
That's the issue when a man, for instance, goes out and lives in an adulterous affair. You know what the problem is there? He's in sin, yes. He needs to repent. You know what the problem is? He doesn't love God, and he's not loving his wife as he should, so therefore he's loving other things more, right? That's the problem. It's a love problem in the heart. This was the case with Judas. His heart never really belonged to Christ. And so my warning to you by means of the Word of God is don't be like the seed sown among the thorns. That's what happened to Judas. He was around the truth truth and the worries of the world and the allurement of the world and money and materialism brought him to the point where he compromised even to the point of betraying the eternal Son of God. And he was absolutely 100% responsible for his sin, right? And so here we have the hardened, shameless traitor betraying Jesus. Judas had been so close to the truth and yet so far away, don't be a Judas. Don't be that man by the grace of God. Well, this evokes, notice, a hasty response. So consider third, the misguided disciple. The misguided disciple, verse 46. Notice, they laid hands on him and seized him. They did this by, by force, by the way. No questions asked of Jesus. No opportunity for him to defend himself. No gentleness in their handling of him. Nothing. In verse 47, you know, if we would have been there, I reckon to say some of us would have run away immediately from this, right? But others of us, in a very genuine way, we would have, would have experienced the injustice here, and we would have jumped in to do what this man does in verse 47. Notice, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, Mark doesn't tell us who this was, but in John 18.10, we know who it was. He says, Simon Peter. Simon Peter, who reached and drew out his sword. This would have been a, a long sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear, John says. So picture this. In a moment of feeling the injustice of what was taking place, in a reactionary moment of haste, Peter uncontrollably swings his long sword, probably aiming for the neck of this servant. And the wording here is not that he cut off the whole ear of the servant, but a small piece or part of his ear. We don't know specifically what part. That's the sense of this here. And of course, Jesus goes on to heal this man very quickly, showing his great power again. Now, some of us might say, well, I don't blame Peter. I would have done the exact same thing, and most of us probably would have. Maybe not with a sword, right? Maybe charging one of these soldiers or whatever. On the one hand, I think it's true that on a human level, Peter's action is understandable. He's reacting to this injustice by defending his Lord. But on the other hand, think about this. Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. Those chapters tell us that Jesus was continually telling his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem and that he was going to suffer and die. Remember? Repeatedly, he was telling them this. And those are statements that are a synopsis of, of what Jesus was saying. This was a continuing conversations. And so Peter and the others had a lot of time to ponder what Jesus had been saying, and yet Peter takes matters into his own hands. In fact, go with me to John chapter 18 for a minute. John chapter 18, because John gives us here a fuller picture of what happened just prior to Peter's misguided action. John chapter 18. 
This is the parallel account to our passage in the Garden of Gethsemane. John chapter 18, verse 4, notice, Jesus, therefore, knowing that all, thi- all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And the he there is not in the original. It's implied. Literally, I am. Sound familiar? Ego a me. I am, which takes us back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God told Moses to tell the people when they ask him who Moses is representing, tell them, God says, I am who I am has sent you. The God, the one true God has sent you. And so by Jesus saying, I am, Jesus is clearly asserting his deity that he's God and his unrivaled authority that we've seen throughout the gospel of Mark, right? That he's unrivaled in authority. I am. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus has made it clear with this statement who he is. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No one else in the entire universe can claim this. So Jesus says, I am he. He's affirming his deity and his unrivaled authority. Now watch this. Look at verse 6. When therefore he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Amazing. Who's really in charge here? It doesn't matter what army they've sent to him. Hundreds of people. It doesn't matter. Jesus could just go, boop, you guys are done. Really by the word of his power, right? Ichabod. He could do that. But this is in fulfillment of his purpose, to die for sins. Look at verse 7. Again, therefore he asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. You think they wanted to mess with the other guys? Maybe they're thinking, man, if he can do that by his mere speaking, he's going to wipe us out. Protecting his disciples. And so then John gives this commentary in verse 9, if you notice, to fulfill the word which Jesus spoke of those whom thou hast given me, I lost not one. That's speaking of his 11 disciples minus Judas Iscariot. Not one of his disciples would be lost, though he will temporarily, they will temporarily flee and struggle. Why? Because ultimately the mighty Christ guards and protects them. And beloved, it's the same thing for us, isn't it? Same Christ. He's got us. Like Peter, we don't need to take matters into our own hands. Christ has got us. He's our great defender. No matter the trial, no matter the attack, no matter the financial difficulty, no matter the physical turmoil you may be experiencing, no matter the relational troubles you may be having in the home, in the workplace, or any other context for that matter, Christ watches and protects those who belong to him every single moment of the day. Amen? He's got us. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. Every other shepherd falls short of the chief Great shepherd who is the perfect, faithful shepherd who never leaves us, never forsakes us, never slumbers nor sleeps, never takes a break. He's always there with us. Amen? Even our salvation. This is why the Bible tells us that you can never lose your salvation. Once saved, truly from the heart, always saved. Why? Because you're protected by the power of God for your salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, First Peter chapter 1, right? Protected by the power of God. Who's stronger than the hand of God? Who's going to take us out of the hand of God? Nobody. 
He's the unrivaled mighty one. I love the end of Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be the glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen. And so here you have this misguided disciple Peter and the very soon fleeting other ten disciples who will falter, but Jesus will protect him, right? Now, if we're not careful here, we may be tempted to think, you know, as we witness this, that Jesus is losing control of the situation. Man, he's got to maybe go to plan B here. He's on his heels reacting to all that's happening. But our next point proves otherwise yet again, right? Consider fourth, the sovereign God. The sovereign God, verse 48. And Jesus said to them, this is after his display of power, by the way. Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? I mean, their manner of handling Jesus was appropriate for a a vicious robber, a vicious criminal. But that's not who Jesus is. All he ever did was do good for people, as we've witnessed in the Gospel of Mark. Speaking the truth in love, doing great mighty acts of, uh, of miracles for people, serving people. He wasn't running around, beloved, by stealth, secretly committing crimes, avoiding authorities. He says in verse 49, every day, every day I was with you in the temple teaching. He's, spe- he's speaking specifically there of Passion Week. Every day he's been in, the, in and out of the temple. He had been in in and out of the temple, ministering in the temple publicly in broad daylight before their very eyes. He says, and you did not seize me. You didn't grab a hold of me. You didn't treat me like this as I was publicly doing this. Now they're doing it by stealth, illegally. He's highlighting that, isn't he? That from a human perspective, they are responsible for what they are doing and how they are treating Jesus. Absolutely. This is illegal activity. This is unjust. We'll talk about that more and unpack that a lot more as we walk through the Gospel of Mark. But please note, here's the greater point that Jesus wants to make. Look at the end of verse 49. But this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures. Underline that. Every time you see that in the Gospel of Mark. Or in the Gospels. How many times have we not seen Jesus' point pointing out the fulfillment of Holy Scripture in circumstances that from a human perspective seem, from a human perspective, to be out of his control? And then he says, this was in fulfillment of Scripture. This was in accordance with the great faithfulness of God. That's why this is taking place. Jesus is not surprised, in other words. He's not taken off guard even here. He reminds them that while they are treating him from a human standpoint falsely and unjustly, there was a divine purpose in all of it. After all, what is the theme verse of Mark? Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, right? And Mark's been telling us this is why he came. He's moving us with these words immediately, moving us to the cross. This is why he came. So this is in fulfillment of God's holy purposes. God is in control. He is mighty in the midst of this. And the irony of all of this, of the sovereignty of God and fulfillment of Scripture and everything that is taking place is that Judas is acting like he's in control of the situation, singling Jesus out, calling for his arrest, calling for him to be treated by force as some common criminal. But in reality, who was in control the whole time? Christ. Christ. You know, this is the same for us, brothers and sisters. 
No matter what's happening in your life, no matter the trial, the job situation, the family turmoil, the physical illness that is frustrating, the physical infirmities, financial strain, no matter the things that are happening in our world that perplex you and you're confused and you're thinking, how does the sovereignty of God fit in all of this? Listen, we can trust in the character of God. Amen? God's plans and purposes cannot ultimately be thwarted. Spurgeon said that the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the believer rests his or her head at night. I love that. I didn't always believe that before Christ. Sovereignty of God was a stumbling block to me. Understandably so. I didn't have spiritual eyes to see. But now as a believer, I look at the circumstances of my life and I think, wow, Lord, I didn't understand in the moment. But now in retrospect, unfortunately, but thank you that I'm even there now. Wow, thank you for being sovereign. Because if I didn't have a, a God who is sovereign, then there would be no hope for pain or the troubles in this world that we see, right? He has solved that problem and is solving that problem by virtue of the person and the work of his son Jesus accomplished on the cross and by virtue of his resurrection, right? He's sovereign. He's sovereign. Chaos and calamity may strike, but God is still on his throne. Listen to J.C. Ryle. Let us rest our souls on the thought that all around us is ordered and ruled by God's almighty wisdom. The course of this world may often be contrary to our wishes. The position of the church may often be very unlike what we desire. The wickedness of worldly men and the inconsistencies of believers may often afflict our souls. But there is a hand above us, moving the vast machine of this universe and making everything work together for His glory and for our good. The scriptures are being fulfilled year by year. Not one detail in them will ever fail to be accomplished. The kings of the earth may take their stand and the rulers may gather together against Christ. But the resurrection morning will prove that even at the darkest time, everything was being done according to the will of God. End quote. I love that. See, we don't often think about this because we're short-sighted. We live in the moment. We evaluate God and His ways by our own human standards. But let us be reminded, even in the Garden of Eden, that this was in fulfillment of Scripture. And Jesus again and again says that this isn't going to cause me to go to a plan B. There is no plan B. This was the plan all along. You, Judas, are responsible. But in the infinite providence of God, this is all in in fulfillment of what God said would happen. Why? For the glory of God and the good of sinners. Well, consider, fifth, the scattered disciples in verse 50. Notice, they all left him and fled. As we said a couple of weeks ago, this also is in fulfillment of Scripture. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7 says, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That was ultimately pointing to the fleeting of Jesus' own disciples. And here in, in Mark or Matthew 26, 56, Jesus says, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. His father was going to abandon him shortly at the cross for our sins. That was the greatest sense of his agony, the abandonment by the father. But he also would experience the, de- the desolation of his loved ones, right? Or from his loved ones. The desertion of those who loved him and who claimed allegiance and loyalty to him. His disciples... Beloved, Jesus had to travel on the road to Calvary alone. Those who claimed allegiance to Jesus all turned their backs on him. 
And that's why when writing to believers, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, these words, Now consider Him, consider Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself. Why? Why should we contemplate and consider Jesus enduring such hostility by sinners against Himself? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. So true. We're reminded here of the fact that Jesus identifies with us in the injustice that we may experience and the betrayal at the hands of others that we may feel. And so let us fix our eyes on Christ. That's the answer, isn't it? There's no greater betrayal than this is what's happening here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. Anything less that we experience, Jesus understands. Jesus can identify with us so we can go to him as a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Amen? Sixth, and I know you were chomping at the bits to get to this point, the interesting man. I didn't even know what to call this, okay? The, the interesting man. In verses 51 and 52, a young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. And you say, what in the world is that, Pastor? I've been waiting for a whole sermon, which I refuse to do, okay? What is Mark's purpose in including all of this? And here's my answer. Ready? It's going to be really, really, really compelling and really, really captivating for you. I don't ultimately know. We're not told by the text, right? We're not told. It's just some young man, a young man, not the young man, a young man. Now, some have proposed that it was maybe one of the disciples. But the problem with that is that verse 50 says that they all left him and fled. Those are the 11. Some have proposed that it was Mark himself. And there's potentially good evidence for that. But there's no definitive evidence of that either, that it was Mark. That would have been interesting, right? Peter was the one that was the eyewitness guy telling Mark about things that happen. He's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, but Peter is his primary source from a physical standpoint. That would have been kind of interesting, right? Peter asking Mark, do you want us to include that about you running around like that? You know what I mean? I don't think so, but it's a good argument. Still others have taken the whole account to be figurative, but that doesn't make any sense. If you have proposed that perhaps it was a servant a young man who lived nearby, perhaps the steward servant of the Garden of Gethsemane, the caretaker of this place, where the Jesus and his disciples would often go as a sort of mini retreat, and that upon hearing all the commotion, he had gotten up in haste, made his way over to see what the commotion was all about, but then they tried to seize him too, and he had escaped. Okay, nothing definitive. It's possible that this was the case. We just don't know. But I like what one pastor has written. Listen to this. It does not interest us much to know who this young man was. And it would not bring any very great fruit to us if we did know. If it had been useful and wholesome for us to know, the Spirit of God, capital S, would not have been silent, seeing that he is often marvelously diligent and relating very minute things. If the Spirit of God wants us to know some details of who this is, he would have revealed it, right? A young man. In other words, he would have told us, but he doesn't do so. I do think, however, that there is something else here. 
And it is something with relation to our faith and trust in Holy Scripture. Okay? And it's this. I think this is yet another great support for the veracity or the truthfulness of Scripture here. And I say this because one wouldn't expect something like this to be included if you're trying to put on a facade and portray things in Scripture in a certain way. In other words, if you're trying to manipulate faith in people, why include this amount, this, this particular information? We intend to include the best parts, right? We leave the parts out that we don't like out of the story. That's not what happens here. This is exactly what happened. It is factual. It is history. It really happened. And so for me, this is yet another evidence of the veracity, of the truthfulness of Scripture. This is simply descriptive of what actually happened. And Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens it for us. Wow. Now listen, brothers and sisters, in all of this, we're comforted by the fact that our precious Savior not only identifies with us, amen, but in much, in much lesser betrayals. But I don't know about you, I'm reminded here of Jesus' resolve once again to go to the cross and die to pay for sins. Why? Because of his great love for us. Amen? He came to earth, Mark 10, 45, seeking not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many in fulfillment of the eternal purposes of God for him to come into the world to do that. It was for the glory of God. And he's bearing up under all of this in his humanity in the Garden of Gethsemane because of his great love for sinners such as us. Amen? I'm greatly comforted by that. I'm greatly encouraged by that great reality. This is a high priest, a treasured, cherished one that I can go to. He understands lesser betrayals that you go through. He understands lesser injustices because he, can, he experienced the ultimate injustice and the ultimate betrayal because of his great love for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, oh Lord, we could spend weeks just expounding upon the glories of Jesus as revealed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, this is, this is holy, sacred ground that we tread upon here. We thank you we thank you for the various accounts and aspects and angles filling up the whole story for us of the great love of our Savior for sinners such as us who deserve hell and condemnation, but by your grace you have given us deliverance from the penalty and the power of our sin and one day from the presence of sin. We thank you. We praise you. Help us to respond this week to the person and the work of Jesus, our great Savior, on mission, making disciples, evangelizing, Edifying, building up one another mutually for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.